Welcome to Tentpole Trauma, the podcast where we look at movies that came with hype and high hopes, but left with crushing disappointment, either critically, at the box office, or both. Freed from the weight of expectations, we seek to examine these underperformers under a new light, parsing through the good, the bad, and everything in between with the hopes of gaining a better understanding as to why they failed to find their audience. Warning, there will be spoilers, so if you haven't seen the movie that we're discussing today, I suggest you stop the podcast and go watch it. Then when you come back and listen, you'll get more out of the discussion. On this episode, we discuss 1982's Tron. Sebastian and I am here with Troy. Hey. And Steve Say. Greetings, program. <laughs> we are here to discuss the 1982 Disney film Tron. This is a special emergency podcast that we threw together because uh, we had a little scheduling snafu, but I'm really happy to have both of you guys here to discuss Tron. I know that you're both Tron fans. Troy, I know you're a big Tron fan. I am. And is it because Tron is almost the same spelling as your name? There's only one letter difference between Tron and Troy. Yeah, I, I did a Facebook post one time and changed the poster, put a Y on it for shits and giggles. So <laughs> I'm aware of that, but no, that's not why. It's not why I like Tron. Tron is a 1982 film uh, directed by Steve Lisberger. Steve Lisberger actually came out of animation, but he did not come out of the Disney stable. And in fact, when they were making Tron, I guess he had some difficulty working with the Disney animators because they saw all the Tron people as sort of interlopers into their animation world. But the Tron character comes out of an animation ad that was run for a radio station. I believe it was a Boston radio station, too, like WCOZ or whatever. But it was just like a character that threw those light discs and then, like, grabbed the light discs. And everybody thought that character was cool. And so he decided to develop a movie about Tron because he was really interested in video games and video game technology and stuff like that. And so he devised this idea for an animated movie that was partially animated by computers, which was very unheard of by then. And then eventually, I think, Disney convinced them to incorporate the live action element. So yeah, that was the development of Tron. Now I have a personal story related to Tron. When this came out, I was a 12-year-old boy and I saw the ads for it and stuff and being a science fiction geek and Star Wars fan and stuff, I was definitely 
super excited to see Tron. So I ended up seeing it with my divorced dad. It was a divorced dad afternoon <laughs> special. Um, there were a lot of those in my sad, sad childhood. <laughs> no, nah, I'm just kidding. My childhood was fine. But my divorced dad and I went to go see Tron in a movie theater in uh, New Hampshire. And it was sort of appropriate because I was also getting into video games at that time because video game culture really boomed in the early 80s, you know, with the advent of Pong and stuff. Pong was actually a big inspiration for Tron, in fact. And there was like an arcade up there in New Hampshire that I used to go to and play all the games. So it all kind of tied together in seeing Tron in New Hampshire. And when we saw the movie, it was the first time I had ever been in a movie where it was just me and like my dad. <laughs> there was literally no one else in the theater. It was just dead. No one there. And I remember thinking, wow, movies can not do well. Like nobody cares about this Tron movie. And as the the movie went on, and we'll discuss this a little bit in the actual body of the film, these terminologies and stuff are getting thrown at you. And when I was 12 years old, I could not make any sense out of what the hell they were talking about, especially since like computer culture was completely alien to me back then too. So I remember just looking at my dad and him being like, what the hell are we watching? What did you drag me to? And then by the end of the movie, we just kind of both sulked out of the theater feeling like really disappointed. I have a, I have a, a question. Did that experience change as an adult? Having all this terminology thrown at you and having it make no sense at all? Up to a point, yeah, until I finally did decide to sort of understand computers to some degree, yes. But I'm going to argue that a lot of the stuff that is said in this movie is no longer relevant. Oh, I'm with you on that. Absolutely. Yes. So one of the co-writers of the movie is a woman named Bonnie McBird, and apparently she was sort of really into computer terminology. So she brought a ton of that sort of terminology into the movie. And then Disney actually had them rewrite it and take a lot of that stuff out. So if you can believe it, there's an earlier version of Tron where there's way more of this stuff. So I guess we can be thankful that <laughs> Disney put their foot down there. But yeah, I would say that a lot of the terminology in here is no longer relevant. This is one of the things that I think kind of killed this movie right off the bat. Yes. Here's a movie that the whole concept of this movie was to anthropomorphize computer science Yeah. with these terms that I don't know if they were hoping for these terms to sort of hit the mainstream. I think the Apple II computer had just come out. So personal computers weren't even really in people's homes yet. So they were expecting people to understand like what a bit is or a recognizer and all these things. And they made these characters like Disney characters. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, my experience with Tron is that I, my dad was a software engineer for Hewlett Packard. So I kind of came to this with a little bit of an understanding of what these things were. And I could kind of go to my dad and ask him like what a bit is and he would explain it to me in the most mundane boring terms but 
Yeah, I would say that this is trying to do what Disney does where they anthropomorphize concepts or, or inanimate objects, but it's kind of the most challenging thing to try to make characters out of something nobody knows about or has heard about at all, or even understands what they do. Steve, what is your history with Tron? So I don't remember seeing it in the theater, but I did have it on VHS somehow. Don't don't ask. But I would watch that tape. Two things were recorded on it. Tron and um, Force 5 anime called Grandizer. Oh, yeah. I love that show. So this tape, I watched it so much. I still have it, actually, but the, the tracking is almost up. Anyway. My parents made me a Tron Halloween costume um, probably <laughs> around that time. Nice. It was like a hockey helmet in white that he painted. My dad painted with like blue paint and glow-in-the-dark paint. And they had like a white one suit, like, you know, leotard, whatever that's called, like also painted on completely. I had a white Frisbee that my dad painted with the rings. I, w- I was, must have been six or something. It like completely overtook all of my imagination. I loved all the video games. When the movie came out, is this right around 82, 83? Yeah, because I remember playing the video game in the arcades, both of them. Well, okay, Discs of Tron came out in 83. Tron Deadly Discs? Yes. I have experience with that game as well on Intellivision. I played it a lot with my cousin. Love the movie. I don't know how many times I watched that VHS cassette. Highly influential. I love lights and like backlit stuff, like LED. When that stuff became available to like <laughs> a consumer market, I was like, oh my God, I'm going to like Tronify everything. You know, it's just, um, <laughs> it's just a cool aesthetic. I mean, we'll, we'll get into it. It's, I love it. Yeah, I'm going to agree with you, Steve, that the look of this film is what kind of captured me. It had a kind of a silent film look with a new wave. I mean, it looked like a music video, which is like what you were saying, Sebastian, is kind of where this thing started as a commercial. You know, it was basically a flashy ad with with some cool effects. So it, it started as a look, but I just thought it was amazing how their faces are this grainy black and white yeah. And you get these close-ups on their faces, and then everything else is like constructed out of cardboard with these lights behind them. It, it really looked new wave to me. Yeah. It looked like rock and new wave. So that's kind of how I got seduced by this film as a kid. And I experienced it on those. It, I clearly remember it's, and I've mentioned this on your podcast a couple of times, is those giant VHS boxes in the video stores. The the big plastic Disney ones that it like opened up like a keep case. Yeah. Clamshell. The clamshell ones. It was that big one. And they were, I remember those specifically because they kind of got brittle pretty quickly and sort of stank like cigarettes because of all the homes yep. <laughs> that they would travel around to. So that I remember that definitely was the Tron video box. And uh, this was a movie that, yeah, same as you, Steve, it, it we played it a lot. I think we would rent it repeatedly. Uh, I don't think I ever owned a copy of it until later, but uh, it was one of those films, like if uh, if we would go to the video store and there was nothing else to rent, it would just get Tron again. And like I said, I kind of was guided through some of these concepts a little bit, the terms and and what these things were. So as a kid, I was like, cool, this is sort of giving me a little bit of an insight into my dad's world 
also on that note, there was a time when my dad actually invited me over to where he was working at Hewlett Packard. And it looked exactly like NCOM when there's, there's that shot in there. And there's like, it's actually a matte painting in the movie, but right, when they yeah. have all those cubicles. Yep. I love that scene. My dad worked in a place that looked exactly like that. So it kind of had a soft spot for me just based on that. It was like, this is kind of the world that my dad exists in. Mm -hmm. It also, I think the major theme of the movie, which I was still trying to figure out <laughs> today. Clarify that for me. What is the theme? Yeah. Okay. It's something that I didn't really pick up on as a kid, but I think my dad kind of got it a little bit, or he sort of, this is what he took out of it, is basically this is sort of the corporatization of early computer tech companies, uh huh. right? Which is not what would make a great Disney film for kids. No. But there's, there's definitely a streak of bitterness in this because it was written by animators and computer people. You know, there's even these lines uh, in the movie where they're saying like, I wish I was still working in my garage. Right, right. Yeah. So it's taking that sentiment of, you know, we can do this, we can make magic out of these machines but the big companies are starting to make them corporate and just run them into business programs. And, you know, there's a little bit of information that's dropped in there about what the, uh, the MCP is trying to do, which is get into like weapons and stuff like that. Virtually the only stakes in the movie is a <laughs> yeah. dropped line about how maybe the MCP could like, get into the Pentagon. Yeah. And that's it. Like, maybe that could happen. This is muddled at best as far yes. as storytelling goes. So I guess back to what I was originally saying is, is I totally got sucked into Tron based on how it looked and the idea of being in a video game. Well, let me just say this up front. Whatever criticisms I may level at Tron, I will not level any at the way the movie looks. Aside from some kind of wonky early CG moments, but I forgive them because they're trend-setting and they're breaking new ground and those things need to happen. But the actual look of the movie is awesome. And I really enjoyed this time re-watching it, really sort of soaking in all of the cool elements of the environment. I love the clothes. I think it's so cool, Steve, that your dad made you one of the costumes because the costumes are great with their glowing elements and everything. The sort of rotoscoping animation that's going on there. I love the backgrounds and everything. Although I do think they can kind of add to the confusion of the story sometimes. We'll get into that. But I definitely have nothing bad to say about the way the movie looks. And like you mentioned, Troy, I love the black and white film look to the characters themselves, to the human elements and stuff. All of that stuff is great. As far as looks go, the movie, I think, is just absolutely a joy to behold. And I would recommend anybody watching it just for that alone. What about the soundtrack? The soundtrack I have some issues with, but we'll, let's get into it. Let's get into the movie, shall we? All right. We start Tron with a sort of zoom in to sort of like this uh, vectory graphic computer thing, right? Right. As like we're supposed to be going into like the motherboard of a video game or something. And we're in the Flynn arcade, but we don't know who's playing the game. And we are playing the light cycle game. Is that the game Tron? 
Yes. yes. In the in the movie. It's the same arcade game that it was actually in the arcades. He created a game Tron even though he doesn't know the name of No, no, no. It was um Space Paranoids and I don't know what the light cycles is called. It's probably just called Light Cycles. I don't think you see the name of the light cycles. Right. Game. Okay. Yeah, you don't see that it's called Tron. Okay, so it's just a light cycle game, but we're watching somebody play the light cycle game, but then we're in the game, so we get our sort of first taste of, you know, that they're going to be actual characters representing these programs or whatever they are, and they're zipping around, and one of the uh, participants in this is the character of Sark, played by David Warner, and he wins the light cycle game, he gets the guy to crash or whatever, and then we see him being sort of uh, spoken to by our main villain, the MCP, which stands for the Master Control Program. So we have our basically Darth Vader and Emperor type of villains, right? Sark is our Darth Vader, although he's sort of more ineffectual, let's say, than Darth Vader. And the MCP is sort of the Emperor. The MCP is sort of telling him like, oh, Sark, you've gotten so much more vicious or whatever. All, by the way, played by David Warner. All three characters. Oh, okay. The MCP is also MCP, David Sark, and Dillinger. And I was going to say, if you give one point to Tron for the way it looks, you got to give another point to Tron for David Warner. I do love David Warner. He is great. And he's pretty fun in this movie. Yeah, I think I um, only remember him from uh, Time Bandits. Yep. He's the villain in that, too. Right. Also, um, uh, Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. He's a Klingon. Right. He's played a ton of villains. He's a, a character actor that's been in all kinds of stuff, but mostly playing villains. We get another scene after this where we meet two of the minor characters that are going to come into play. Ram, who's played by an actor named Dan Shore, who I don't think I've ever seen again in anything, and a character named Krom. Is that a Conan reference or something? <laughs> uh, played by an actor named Peter Jurassic, who I've never seen in anything again either. Should have cast him in Jurassic Park. What a waste. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Missed opportunity there. They're essentially disgruntled, right? I mean, that's what we're kind of getting out of this is that these are, we're, we're meeting the computer world people and they're, they're disgruntled. Well, we learn that they are basically programs and that the MCP is snatching up programs for whatever reason and he's making them fight or he's like appropriating them into himself for some reason that they do not know. And they also talk about users who are people in the real world, but they don't understand the concept of the real world, so they don't really know what that is. But this is the weird sort of quasi-religious element to the story, which... I swear to God, I've seen this movie five times. I did not pick up on this until the last viewing for this podcast. I'm like, oh, they like worship the users. So like the whole conflict between the MCP and Sark and whatever we're going to call them, the Empire or whatever, they believe that speaking about the users makes you a heretic. And that's why they're taking all these programs who are religious quote unquote and worship their users they're sort of like the romans throwing the catholics to the lions or whatever as you're describing this you're making tron sound pretty awesome like you're here to sort of take this thing down right i have some issues with tron yes all right because that's cool 
yeah, it is cool, but it's not really that well developed. It's so no. underdeveloped that you can <laughs> easily miss it. I only noticed this because I really have been paying attention to this movie. As, as a nine-year-old, of course, nobody's going to pick up on this. The only thing as a, as a nine-year-old that I could get into about this movie is, is that, wow, isn't it cool to be inside of a, to be a game character? Essentially what Disney later did with Wreck-It Ralph and made it extremely simple and yeah. marketable. I got a feeling for the religious aspect of the user watching it early on. The entire comparison to um, Roman times is is actually super apt. Um, thinking about it now, yeah, the the gladiatorial aspects, even the um, the guards with their spears. Steven Lisberger said when he was looking at Pong, he imagined it as a uh, gladiatorial game. <laughs> <laughs> Which no, that's that's. Is stated as his inspiration for for Tron. To those listeners who don't remember Pong, Pong <laughs> was literally two rectangles that would go up and down <laughs> vertically on a screen and and hit a little cube to each other, and it would go boop, boop, boop. So to imagine that is like gladiators fighting with spears is quite a stretch. I have to say, do you, if you guys remember when video games looked like shit, they were essentially like blocks and circles and you would move these things around. There was a lot left to your imagination. So Definitely. that kind of makes sense to me as you're playing these crude early video games, you had to do a lot of the work yourself. So I can, I get that. I get how, you know, you can be inspired by video games in those days that really looked like garbage. Yeah. And I was that kind of person. Like there was a game called Adventure from Atari oh, yeah. and I was just really into sword and sorcery stuff and it was ostensibly like a sword and sorcery game but all you were was a little block that moved around <laughs> and there was like a sword you could pick up and it would just sort of stick to your block as you moved through like mazes but in my mind I was like going through a dungeon and fighting dragons and stuff yeah totally it was the crudest thing you could possibly imagine. So I get it. I did that all the time. The cabinet art on like Pac-Man, uh, Space Invaders, uh, Centipede, like all those games, like really played into like the imagination just playing the game on screen. Oh yeah, you would see these boxes at the store and you'd be like, cool. And you'd buy this Atari game that had this painting of like this elaborate dragon breathing fire and you'd plug it in and it literally would be like, a beige screen with a little black rectangle <laughs> running along the bottom. But we used our imaginations back then, <laughs> damn it, kids. My mom wouldn't even buy me an Atari when I was really little. So I, I wanted one so bad that I actually drew pictures and taped them onto the TV screen. Wow, that sounds like a, a, a kid drawing a, a keyboard and like pretend they learned programming <laughs> that way. No, I built, I built like a whole console out of cardboard and would imagine that I was playing... Atari. <laughs> wow. That is so wonderfully creative and also sad at the same time. <laughs> exactly. Well, I was spoiled then because I had the Atari and the Intellivision. Not to get too down the rabbit hole with this stuff, but Intellivision was wildly superior to Atari, except that I hated the controllers. That's why when ColecoVision came out, that was the best because it was like the graphics of Intellivision, but with a more easy to use controller system. But we digress. I mentioned that just because the amount of knowledge about computer inner workings was pretty nil at that time. So you could get away with having characters dressed up as microchips 
and right. walking around <laughs> essentially and and people would buy it unlike now where artificial intelligence and and computer simulations in shows like black mirror essentially are just a repetition of of the world we live in it's just you know you wouldn't even try to make it look different than what we already are experiencing. So there was a lot of area to play around with when Tron came out. Well, speaking of the real world, we get to the real world next and we meet our main character, Flynn, as played by the great Jeff Bridges. And he is working at his computer using a character within the grid, the virtual world of Tron. And this character is named Clue. And he's using Clue to look for a file, and Clue looks exactly like Jeff Bridges, which is one of a few confusing elements in this movie that I take issue with. Like, we have Jeff Bridges in the real world, then we have this character, Clue, who's going to come back in the sequel, but for now we're just going to leave him here because this is where the movie leaves him. He's an exact replica of Jeff Bridges in this computer world, but then later Jeff Bridges is going to go into the computer world and be in there too. So right away, this is something I think is confusing. And I remember being confusing to me as a kid, but Clue has got his own it's like ship, which is a recognizer, which is this sort of distinctive sort of ships that they have in this world. They look a little bit like very blocky representations of the robot from Black Hole, <laughs> Maximilian. But if you don't know what that is, which you probably don't, they are just kind of these blocky ships with big, long legs. We're sort of getting early computer graphics here, right? Yes. Yes. This is early, early, one of some of the first computer generated imagery clues in a tank um and he's being chased by the recognizers but doesn't later doesn't uh, flynn find clues tank or and then it turns into a recognizer or something no he, later on when the light cycles are destroyed because he's a user he's able to create a recognizer out of the debris see i didn't never i never got i just thought he had some sort of magical powers and just could do whatever he i mean wanted. he does as the user but you're, you're saying that clue that character and the setup in this early on is really confusing because Clue gets killed and then you never hear about him again. Right. That, that's a character which is confusing in its concept to begin with because he's Flynn's program. Yes. You know, but and you don't really you don't get enough information to know or why he wrote that program and what it's doing. And then it's gone. We get information as to what Tron is, which I, another problem I have with this is movie. why the movie's called Tron. That's like if Star Wars was <laughs> called Han Solo. He's like yeah. the side guy who's kind of more the hero, but he's not the main character. He's not the name of the world. Like, I always thought it would just be the name of the world would be called Tron or I whatever. I think it kind of ended up being that with Tron Legacy. Because they had to sort of keep the name. They make the same mistake in that movie. <laughs> but you you got to call it Tron because it's a sequel. So it's right. just sort of called Tron, even though Tron is this, he's a supporting character, but he's even less in Tron Legacy. It's, it's stated what Tron is, like Alan explains it. He's a security program. The, the purpose of Tron is to basically be a policeman for the MCP. And the MCP doesn't want Tron poking around, which is why he does whatever it is, the, the firewall or whatever they call it. Right. But my point is, is we don't we know what Tron does, but we don't know what 
Clue does. I would just assume they're basically the same thing. They're programs that these users who are the characters we're following have made to run around in this world and do things for them. That's all you need to know. Yeah, it doesn't really matter because this is none of this is established really well until you get to... At all. At all. No. Okay, so my son just watched Tron. He's eight. He just watched Tron and he loved it for kind of the exact same reasons because uh, that I did when I was a kid. And I asked him like, because I was curious, was like, why the hell did you like this? Do you remember the, do you, do you remember the scene where they're in the, the company in the business? And he was like, no, what? Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. so do you understand that these, that they wrote these, these are computer programmers that wrote programs and then the programs are are now characters that look like the people that wrote them. And he's like, what? And so yeah. <laughs> every time I tried to ask him like what Tron was about, he had no idea what I was talking about. If he did know what it was about, he would be like a fucking genius. It would be like, let's get him into the, like some sort of position of power because you have to be like a boy genius <laughs> to figure out what the fuck this movie well, is about. Well, it was kind of amazing to watch him be totally into this movie and I like actually want to watch it again and have literally no idea what was happening in it. So yeah. <laughs> this is, and I could clearly see like, this is the experience that I went through when I saw this as well. But the most important scene, which is probably the most boring and poorly written scene is the exposition scene where they're in Dillinger's office and grandpa lost boys. What's his name? That actor, the old man, Bernard Hughes. He's in there and he's he's arguing about the MCP program. And he says, there's a little bit of our souls in all these programs that we wrote. Right. And and then he states that the the issue that everybody's having is this MCP program, which that character created, but then Dillinger continued to write it and, and become this program that absorbs all the other. It was a chess playing program. Yes. The MCP started as a chess playing program. Yes. It started as the computer that McCready pours his whiskey into at the beginning of the thing. <laughs> That's the MCP. Yes. It started as a chess program. So all of this is actually a really cool idea, but it's it's briefly explained in here. None of this stuff has anything to do with the rest of the story. Like I mentioned, you know, now the MCP is sort of as an artificial intelligence trying to take over the company itself and get into global strategies and weapons and, and politics. Right. It's trying to become like a Skynet of sorts. Right. Yes. It's becoming a Skynet. Exactly. But the movie does not establish that with any real stakes. It's no. all hypothetical. We don't ever see like, oh my God, the MCP is actually getting into the Pentagon. And he's he's right. arming the nuclear warheads or whatever. Like so all of this is set up. And then what the movie, the adventure is Flynn trying to get basically like copyright information on a game he wrote. That's his motivation for being there. That's the whole hero's journey. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. I mean, the entire um, AI stuff gets explored more in war games like a year after. Oh, no, this was during a time in the 80s when like computer whiz kids and, and computer geniuses was a big thing. Hackers and stuff. Right, exactly. The term hackers, was this the first time that was ever used in a movie? Because I feel like it might have been. It might have been the first time. And then, like uh, Steve said, War Games came out like a year later, yeah. right, in 83. Yeah. And then you had Real Genius. And right. you had um, 
weird science. It was basically when computers could just do magic. Like nobody knew what, what, how they worked really or how powerful they were. If you had one, you could just kind of do anything with it. Maybe I, because I've watched it so often throughout the years, um, I always understood. I mean, I maybe I didn't have the, the wording, but I did know that Clue was Flynn's avatar in the digital realm and that he was looking for files. And then when they get to the meeting room and the master control program is like, yo, I um, felt him again. I mean, it's, it was pretty clear what he was trying to do to me. And I got all that, too, even as a 12-year-old. Like, I understood all that at the time, even not having any sort of concept of avatars or anything like that. So, I mean, I think the movie does a good enough job of helping you out to get there. I don't think that's really the major problems of narrative that this movie has. I think it has much bigger narrative problems. <laughs> So, like, bringing this back to characters that aren't avatars uh, in a computer, we have our second major character, who is Alan. What, what's Alan's last name? Bradley? I forget. Alan Bradley. He's played by Bruce Boxleitner, who was kind of a minor TV star in the early 80s. He would show up in a lot of stuff and TV and stuff. He's a handsome guy, as is Jeff Bridges, obviously. But he's this disgruntled programmer who is working at NCOM, and he is dating uh, Laura, L-O-R-A, who's played by Cindy Morgan, a very um, attractive young woman who was in, like, Caddyshack. She has sort of a memorable role in that. But she's working in this laser lab with the this older dr gibbs who's played by the lost boys grandpa bernard hughes so they're working on this laser that can literally take matter apart and put it in a computer and then put it back into reality and they are just doing this so like casually as if it is <laughs> this is not like the biggest fucking thing that anybody's ever come up with. And like Alan is just kind of pissed off because he can't get Tron into this system that he's trying to nose around in and Dillinger has shut him down and everything. And so he's sort of stormed off to this lab that they're working at. And this lab, I don't know where they found this location, but it is incredible. It is just floors and floors of grating and catwalks, and it's all kind of painted white and blue and stuff, and it is just really kind of cool. I'm sure it's a real place. It was a real place. I, I caught that today when I was looking at some of the, the uh, behind-the-scenes stuff. It was, a, it was a real lab. I don't remember what type of lab it was, but they were pretty excited to get that as a set. So he wanders up to this lab to talk to his girlfriend, Laura, and she's just taken an orange and put it into virtual reality and then brought it back. And he's like, yeah, that's cool. I'm really ticked off, though, about not being able to get into this system. <laughs> and also, this is like this is some side project that NCOM right. is, is allowing them to do it's just another division. Now, NCOM, this this is the part that I think I'm still confused about after having seen this a bunch of times, but is NCOM's main business space paranoids? School me here, Steve, because I'm still confused, confused at what NCOM actually does. So from my understanding, the uh, Barnard Hughes or Dr. William Walter Gibbs, he is like the sort of Wozniak, like one of yeah. the original creators of this company. 
Um, and it grew. Yeah, he built a chess game. Was that him that created the chess game? Yes. And it grew and it became a, a software concern. And then they spread out into other technologies. Okay. He's still the engineer. So he's still the guy that's actually making stuff. And Dillinger is sort of like the evil criminal Steve Jobs, I guess, uh, you know, the corporate thing. I mean, he comes in on that, like, that sort of red helicopter, which is super cool. Yeah. Super cool. That helicopter is sick. His desk is like, in 1982, His desk is awesome. the computer yeah. light up screen. This is like way before, I mean, Star Trek Next Generation. His entire desk is a touch screen. Yeah. I mean, the it's The whole thing. The future think in this, just the concept production stuff is constantly blowing my mind for 1982. But Dillinger is a plagiarist. Yes. Yeah, he's the guy that's swooping in and taking all the credit, and he's yeah, right. stealing geniuses like Flynn's games, Space Paranoids, and Tron. Right. I mean, that's that Space Paranoids game, they say, is the one that you know brought the company value up and was selling everywhere. So yeah. It allowed them to, to make teleportation devices on the side. Right. Yeah. <laughs> While they're focusing on space paranoids. Who needs Seth Brundle? <laughs> they're creating like incomprehensible artificial intelligence and teleportation and <laughs> yeah. digitizing of matter under the hood. But Alan's pissed off that he can't get Tron into this thing. So he <laughs> he brings it to, to Laura and she's like, well, what we need to do is go to see my ex-boyfriend, Flynn, and he'll be able to get in there or whatever. And so we get this really weird sort of sexual dynamic that sort of plays out through this movie where um, we have Laura, who later will become the character of Yori in the game. But she really doesn't have much of a role at all in the movie. She just kind of hangs in the background. I mean, she's at least presented as smart obviously she can send things into virtual reality with her laser but she gets really quickly sidelined and sort of disappears from the movie but yeah it's this weird dynamic where now she's with alan and so alan doesn't want to go see flynn he's like i don't want to go see that guy or whatever and he's obviously jealous and she's just like oh just Go on. And like, this is a kid's movie. And, you know, they go to see Flynn at his arcade where he's kicking ass because now he's left the company in disgrace. And now he has got his own arcade, which is probably making him serious bank. So I don't even know why he's still that mad, but whatever. And also, that was probably one of the coolest parts about the movie, seeing it as a kid, was this guy who owned his own arcade and had like a loft upstairs that he hung out in. That he lived in. And like Alan's all like, oh, well, this crummy loft you live in. But as a kid, you're like, are you kidding? Yeah. That's like heaven on earth. <laughs> right. And he has like all these groupies like that are watching him play the games. And he's like, sort of like a, a hero. Like I remember my mall arcade at the Christiana Mall. I, I remember the layout. I could probably draw it. I couldn't really even tell you where my favorite games were in the arcade. And yeah, if someone was awesome in a game, you'd be watching that player get like the high score and stuff. It's one of the few movies that Last Starfighter and even uh, Record Ralph that's like a record of this period in the 80s and early 90s. It was just like arcades were freaking awesome. Yeah, to live in your own arcade in a loft was about as cool as you could get. 
Right. But this is where we learn that the reason why Flynn has been nosing around an income because Laura has figured out that Flynn is the guy that's been pestering the system or whatever, however she's figured it out. She knows. She knew because Dillinger shut down Group 7 Access, which is what Alan was using for Tron. Yeah. And because he shut down all Group 7 Access, Laura's like, oh, Flynn had Group 7 Access, so he must have been the one that's infiltrating the company. Let me tell you, as a 12-year-old, this shit plays gangbusters. <laughs> <laughs> These human real world parts are are super slow, super boring in a way, but maybe because I'm the age I am, like I appreciate that kind of movie making. And now where it's all rushed to the punchline, now I'm sort of like, oh, I miss when it was like slow and drawn out. And confusing. I miss when movies kids' movies were just utterly incomprehensible. <laughs> It definitely is not holding your hand. No. It's expecting you to figure this shit out, which is pretty remarkable for a Disney movie in 1982. But, you know, perhaps maybe didn't play so well. This technology is something that kind of disappeared pretty quickly once personal computers started be becoming uh, household objects. There's essentially one computer, it's called a mainframe, and then everybody is on what's called terminals, which is just they're connecting their keyboards to the mainframe, and that's why they're always getting locked out and having to get access to go into it, because this one computer would be like the, an entire floor of a whole building because they were so huge and, and complicated. So that was pretty confusing because when you're watching that, it's kind of hard for kids to understand what they're talking about. And then after that, mainframes kind of started to disappear unless it was just in these giant businesses. So, Well, that makes sense then why they have to break into ENCOM to actually get into the system, which is what they have to do. Right, because there was no internet login access from an exterior terminal. Yeah, you, you had to go to your terminal and log in from that terminal to get access to it. So the terminal they determined best for Flynn to get into the system is the terminal that's set right in front of the laser that uh, Laurie's been working on. So they break back into ENCOM and like Flynn is so cool because he's got like this chip card that can like hack into the security door and the door's like this really thick door that opens. It's got like multiple levels and he's like, that's a big door. I love that line. Which is a line that gets said again in Tron Legacy, I noticed. So, yeah, he gets in there and he's working on the terminal. And did you guys notice that Alan goes to his cubicle and on his cubicle is a like sign that says Klaatu Barata Nikto? I did catch that. Which is what Ash says in Army of Darkness. But even though that movie came out many years later, but it's from uh, the day the Earth stood still. Or yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah, it, it's a good little homage to kind of this nerd culture in this environment. All that really matters is that as Flynn is working on getting in there, the MCP figures out he's there and he's like, if you don't stop this, I'm going to have to bring you into the grid. And Flynn's like, yeah, yeah, whatever. And so the MCP fires up the laser and he basically disintegrates Flynn and reintegrates him onto the grid. And we get this cool shot of Jeff Bridges freezing. And then we see the laser going in and like taking 
taking little squares of him piece by piece. I still like that shot. I think that shot still looks pretty cool. It's very cool. It's uh, sort of this like futuristic body horror thing going on. Like it's quite frightening. I mean, he's being turned into digital information. Yeah. The visual of going down the rabbit hole, as it were, like is incredible. Super beautiful. You wish every screensaver looked like that. Yeah, it it still had that kind of new wave MTV kind of look that I was talking about. I really like all the uh, animation. Well, I feel like a lot of like video graphics that would be on MTV or whatever were heavily influenced by that stuff. Yeah. But I'm glad that you brought up the going down the rabbit hole thing because this story-wise is very much... Alice in Wonderland, which Steve Lisberger said in his initial design of the movie that that's what he was thinking of. I also think it's Wizard of Oz, especially in the sense that we're getting these analogs of other characters in the computer world that exist in the real world. Beat me to it, Sebastian. I'm kind of pissed. Completely ruined my end thesis. <laughs> anyway, no, yeah, you're <laughs> you're totally right. So yeah, um, Flynn is now in the grid, and like you know, we get a scene of like the MCP giving Sark some guff, and we see that the MCP can kind of control Sark's energy. So if Sark doesn't do exactly what he says, and when he says it, Sark it will be hurt or depowered or whatever. Here's a thing for me that was getting a little bit muddled again, and maybe this doesn't matter and it's just me, me being nitpicky, but why would programs be affected by like power cycles and energy and power sources and things like that? I think it's just because they need some sort of power to wield to boost or take away. You know, it's more of a fantasy conceit than it is a technical conceit i think but i mean you could make the argument that that you know power is what gives all programs their power i mean at one point they find like water yeah i think it's just kind of a holdover from these other templates from fantasy stuff like it's like the force or something it's for me it didn't really ever make that much sense in tron yeah they're trying to do the force basically is what it feels like and i don't think they're doing it very well because you don't ever really get a real understanding of what any of this means or what it can do nothing works if you don't plug it in so this the idea of electricity powering all these things, even the programs, like that water is energy. The MCP is taking it from Dillinger so he can't function. When someone gets derezzed, they're basically deleted from the system. So maybe it's like allocating memory to a certain program. Right. I guess that could make sense. Like if you don't have enough memory going to Photoshop, it's not going to open up an image. I like that you're really, you know... I know, I just, I was, I was trying to think, like, <laughs> if this Tron world existed on my computer and I had a little Photoshop walking around talking to my Zoom <laughs> app and, you know, there was like a place where they hung out and one of them said, I, I really need more memory and water. Like, I'm trying to figure out how this universe works. Yeah, no, it's fun stuff to think about. They didn't really have to go into it. I just understood that, yes, energy... So now Flynn is on the grid and he's getting sort of uh, bossed around by people like the guards who have their spears and they're sort of have these red highlights. So, you know, that they're the bad guys. The good guys have these blue highlights. This is where Flynn meets Ram and he doesn't really fully meet Tron yet, but Tron's in the same sort of holding area that he's in. 
Flynn's really taken it in stride considering that he's been, you know, dematerialized and rematerialized into a computer. He's really like swinging with it. They're like, yeah, they're going to make us play games and stuff. He's like, well, games. All right. I'm great at games, you know, really uh, get some Jeff Bridges bringing his sort of a little bit of the dude to some of these moments. Oh, can you imagine this movie without Jeff Bridges? Could you imagine the struggle it would be without him carrying you through this? It is true. He brings the humanity to this movie because Bruce Block's Leitner is fine, but he's a little wooden. So yeah, it's kind of all down to Jeff Bridges to bring the personality here. I love the uniform on the guards, just the hooded look. I never played hockey, but I really (laughs) wanted hockey gloves after watching... Tron because of the just the giant fists and the the padding of the the vest and just the trippy filter effect on the tips of the the staff. Oh yeah, like when they strike and you get that sort of star filter look. Yeah. There's a lot of good padding on the uh the costumes. I think Yuri has some pretty awesome padded boots, moon boots, or even the forearm gloves. Yeah, they're somewhere between hockey gear and like ski boots and stuff like that. The costumes are great. They're really fun. So they bring these players out into this arena and we get a scene where like Sark comes out and to Steve's point, Stark's got his own cool sort of headdress with like wings on it and stuff. And he's telling them that, you know, they've got to renounce their belief in the users. So we're getting more of that religious stuff here he also explains that these frisbees which they just look like frisbees are their identity discs that's going to sort of catalog all of their thoughts and feelings and experiences or whatever which then i'm not exactly sure how that then translates to being a weapon but it does this wasn't something that bothered me with a kid i was just like cool those frisbees are kick-ass well i'm sure that's that's how a lot of this movie got made was these animators were like out in the parking lot where they worked and they were throwing, tossing the Frisbee back and forth. And they're like in between eating Cheetos and they're like, what if these were like, (laughs) what if we were actually computer programs? And these were like, all our information was on this Frisbee man. In high school, (laughs) we had these people we called the Frisbee people because they were like the, (laughs) the older stoner teenagers who would just go out and play Frisbee like across from the high school. That's totally how Tron started. (laughs) These guys getting high and tossing the Frisbee back and forth to each other. And that's why there's a confusing element of this Frisbee in the movie, which is kind of a weapon, kind of an identity disc, something you use to scoop power sources with sometimes. It's a great sake bowl. (laughs) (laughs) It's a lightsaber, but one you can make for really cheap because all you got to do is like... (laughs) Go get like a whammo flying disc and paint it like Steve's dad did, and then you're good to go. Totally. <laughs> the first um, sort of way we see this being used as a weapon is they see Tron fighting for the users. They're like, he fights for the users, and he uses his disc, and it like when it hits the other person, it derezzes them and they sort of disintegrate. You can also block with it. When you throw it, it makes this nice trippy trail. And this was sort of the basis of the game Tron Deadly Discs that I played religiously with my cousin. I have an affinity for this part of the movie just because it was fun to play that on in television. Tron's down there because he's also been chosen to play the games to get killed. They put four on one, the odds, and and Tron has 
trained his um, disc so well that he can make it repeatedly hit someone until they're dead without even touching it more than once. It's showing how awesome he is, basically. Right. He's the most kick-ass warrior in this world, which is makes it a little weird that he's not the main character of the movie, that our main character is this other guy, but yet the movie is called Tron. That was always a confusing element to this to me. But it continues to be a problem even, even as you're talking about the movie. Yes. Through, throughout. It's, <laughs> it will always become a problem, like why this character is important. One thing I want to bring up that's a really weird thing that they put in here is they explain that Ram and Krom were like insurance programs. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> like, like kids love insurance. Like they're going to really be able to relate to these characters who are like insurance software. <laughs> like he's like an actuarial program. He explains why have this in the movie is baffling to me. It was trying to be a joke, but it fell pretty flat as a, kid and even now i i kind of loved that it was like you know the h&r block program was like <laughs> like okay we're throwing you on the game grid because you're not good enough to be absorbed by the mcp um i no i i freaking loved it i and having met accountants like later in life i appreciate it more and more um as life goes on for your eight-year-old son i think it's so great that when he comes back to this movie over the years, he's going to just get more and more out of it. It's going to be amazing. Just like I did. Yeah. Maybe some kid watched this and it was like, yeah, I want to be like Ram. Ram. <laughs> Ram, the insurance program. But yeah, so we see Tron kicking ass and then Sark decides he wants Flynn to fight Krom. So Sark is pitting program against program because I think the MCP is like, we've got this new player on the board. The MCP is somehow on to Flynn. So he makes him fight another one of the good guys. So Flynn has got to fight one of his friends, ostensibly. It's in this thing they call the ring game where they're on this like floor that's got all these rings and the rings light up if you hit them with your thing and you can fall through the ring and the game they're playing is clearly based on high ally do you remember high ally yeah from yeah. miami vice briefly just kidding <laughs> <laughs> yeah it was in the opening credits of miami vice right. right it was like a big thing back in the early 80s and like so was like that was when like racquetball had first gotten big so i feel like there's kind of that element to a lot of these games my dad would sort of force me to play racquetball with him and i kind of hated it but i mean it had that kind of feel of these types of competition games that were kind of becoming big around this time it's basically the cool version of as you said it's this visualization of pong just way cooler and way deadlier. So they, you know, they've got these like high lie scoops that they throw. Are they throwing discs at each other? They are, right? They're, they're light balls. Ball. Light balls. Okay. But like Flynn wins the contest, but he won't kill Krom because they're on the same side. But Sark just presses a button and Krom falls in between the rings and dies. So it's a pre Mortal Kombat move uh, moment where he's like, finish him. And you know, he was like, no, I'm not going to put in the command to do it. It's that thing in the gladiatorial match where it's like thumbs down and you yeah, know. thumbs down. Right. And then Sark is there tempted to kill 
Flynn, but then he remembers what the MCP told him was like, play the games until he dies playing or something like that. So back in the pens or whatever they'd be called where all the other fighters are, Flynn meets Tron face to face and he recognizes that it's Alan. They both basically establish that they're users both want them to get the MCP, even though Flynn is his actual user. But Alan's like, my user wants me to get the MCP too. So we know that they are united on the same side of things. And this leads to the light cycle sequence, which I think is pretty much the big scene of the movie, right? Like this is the thing that most people remember from the movie. These are the images that most people remember to set it up. It's It's another sort of gladiatorial contest only it is done with these really cool motorcycles that appear around each contestant or combatant or whatever you want to call them they're like a bar that you grab onto the bar and then this super cool high-tech japanese stylish motorcycle appears around you and they're different colors and they all race on just this giant grid and they have really, the sound design in it is really cool, too. It's got some great sounds in there. Oh, all over the place. The sound design in this movie is just super cool. The de-rezzing sounds, the the teleporting in sound when the when the discs, like, phase up and they appear onto the grid. Super cool. So they have this big chase in these light cycles. And when the light cycles move, they leave behind a solid wall behind them as like in their wake if the light cycle is blue it's a big blue wall and if the light cycle is uh, yellow it's a yellow wall so you've got these sort of color-coded walls happening so you know which light cycle is making which wall and so the grid itself ends up becoming a maze that gets denser and denser and denser as the light cycles keep going and you know the trick is to get your opponent to like take a hard right turn so they smash into your wall or whatever and this is what the video game that exists in the movie and in real life that's this is what the game was it's sort of like tetris meets a racing game or something it was a fun game it was definitely an addictive arcade game it was one of those games where i wanted to be good at it so bad and i wasn't (laughs) and i would watch dudes playing it and i'd be like god they're so good at this like in my mind, they really were getting all the chicks just like Flynn. <laughs> <laughs> that light cycle. I, the thing that maybe threw me off when I was little was like, oh, the bad guys are red, but they drive the blue cycles. Yeah. And then like the good guys have their like hero cars, which... And they're all blue, but then their cars are like red, yellow, and orange. Their color game gets thrown off by the light cycles because they can't have three blue light cycles versus three red light cycles. Right. They need to mix up the the colors. Thinking about now, that contrast between the pilot and the car was absolutely, in that case, necessary in the framing of seeing them in the car or the bike. Uh, And I had the... The yellow one, the toy. Nice. Was it a little toy that you uh, zip cord? Yeah, the zip cord. Where you like pull it and it'd go racing off. For all those toys, like the zip cord was like the easiest thing to lose. Yeah. So I don't yeah. even think I have it anymore. And then the the small glow in the dark disc that pegged into the back of the, the translucent figure. Also easily lost, but also very cool. That toy also triggered my love of translucent toys. 
putting a, a light under it and having them just glow. Yeah, they were cool toys. They kind of looked like the, the first IMAX that came out, like the multicolored see-through IMAX. They, they had that you could kind oh, of see right, inside, right, right. To the, uh, inside the action figure with a translucent plastic on the outside. They were a great design. When Flynn goes into the maze... And it's the swap, like left, right, like left, right, like, you know, like through it. It's the sound and the visual. Everything just combines in this movie. And it just, it looks so cool that that the wall of the the light cycle um, arena grid with its sort of like weird mathematical symbols, like you can make out numbers and like the equal sign and division, but it's, it's the sort of like design language that Tron created with its graphic design, which I feel was super influential. Like you look at Transformers, the movie in 1986, when Megatron gets deconstructed and turned into Galvatron, like that's the same like grid line effect that they're using on the orange and um, Flynn when they get digitized. It's, it's a highly visually influential movie. This scene sells it. This is definitely the show-stopping scene. But, like, to your point about the wall, in the story, one of the light cycles gets thrown into the wall or whatever, and it creates a hole in the wall. And then Flynn goes through the hole, and he tells the other guys to follow him. And so they're racing towards the hole, but there's one bad guy in between them, and they do this cool move where they just move in closer together, and that forms, like, a cutoff wall that then the bad guy drives right into and explodes and it's a pretty exciting final move for the race which ends on a high note right it's sort of like flynn can think outside of the box because he's a user and no one would have thought to make the hole in the wall and then to go through it to escape and he's the one that does it and then the recognizer comes down to try to close that hole having played the tron game in the arcades the finesse to go like left, right really quickly to make that smaller angle, impossible. Yeah. No one has the reflexes to do that in the game. Come on. So now they are racing outside of the game arena, just going through these sort of vague cliffside sort of landscapes. There's a weird quality to this movie that can be sort of haunting with just, you know, when they're just out and about in these areas that aren't specifically supposed to be any one area. Like now we're outside, quote unquote, and things are just kind of like outlines or whatever. It's sort of a weirdly haunting thing. And then later in the movie, we get into see sort of more, I would say, psychedelic or surrealist kind of backgrounds. And those sort of started to remind me of the sort of like 70s stuff. Like, I don't know if you've ever seen um, like Fantastic Planet or like Mobius was one of the designers on this, uh, right. the French designer. You're talking about like the, the big vast landscapes with the rolling hills and stuff and the spheres. That's the part we're in now. But then even later, things even get kind of crazier where there's just like floating spheres and, you know, like, yeah, they, they look sort of airbrushed or something. They look like a, I'm trying to think of like, a, they look like a Toto album cover or something. Yeah. yeah. Or it definitely, it kind of has a, definitely looks like an album cover. I was thinking prog rock, but that's two seventies. Cause this is, 
more new wave that you're talking about. Yeah, but there's still a 70s element lingering in there. I mean, it's early 80s, so we weren't yeah. completely free of the well, 70s. Frisbees. Frisbees, exactly. There, <laughs> there's a bit of the 70s in there. I'm just saying, like, you especially notice it as the movie begins to fall apart narratively, the yeah. backgrounds become more elaborate. So you have, like, more nice shit to look at. Oh, I know exactly what you're talking about. That's why I was trying to think of which album cover this background was reminding me of. Like the Roger Dean art? Right. The characters are, are on a some kind of solar sailor trying to get somewhere that I don't care, but the background just looks like, a, which band is this? So they're riding around on the bikes and they're getting chased by tanks, but they manage to lose them. And this is where they chill out in that area where there's power water or whatever. But the important thing to know here is that Tron looks off into the distance and he sees the input output tower, which is going to become this important location. And it's got like a laser beam going up to the sky, but he knows that he's got to go there to get the mcp or whatever they go off to head for the tower but the tanks come after them and then there's an explosion that separates them and tron leaps over this chasm with his bike and all he can see is this sort of vectorish rubble on the other side and he thinks that his friends are dead because one of the tanks reports them derezzed and he's like no and he drives off so now our heroes are separated the tank pilots even though they're the bad guys they're done in this sort of like super cool glowing green color mm-hmm. and they have that rotating tank cockpit which is like two different swivels turning at the same time and they're yeah that's bad around like a submarine it's i want a room like that yeah <laughs> yeah it does kind of look like a nightclub inside those tanks like it's got like a black light room or something yeah. when the blast from the tanks which look like like Someone's shooting out like a staple gun or something like these like brackets fly into the wall and it makes this sort of like explosive target expanding explosion on the walls. Um, I love it. The sound in this when they're just flowing through the thing about this part of the movie, what I like about it is it's so simple and geometric. And nowadays when you see CG and stuff or a character design, in a game or movie, they add all this extra kibble. And it's the opposite of Star Wars, where you're like, oh, all that greebling and stuff is cool on the Millennium Falcon, but here's the opposite aesthetic. There's not a sense of over-design. It feels like things are designed exactly right in terms of what the movie sort of needs. Flynn and Ram are still alive in the rubble, but Ram is wounded. And Flynn just kind of takes him to this... I thought it was like a trashed recognizer or it was Clue's ship or something. It's not very well established. She basically just wanders over to it. And then he puts Ram down and he starts messing with stuff. And then it all starts to like reconfigure itself as now like a recognizer. But it's like one of its feet is sort of falling off or whatever. This is definitely the scene where you are getting the quote unquote force element yes. as a as a user like he's this is our hero that has magic powers in this world but what doesn't work here is that now the character of ram who we've barely knows 
is dying and they have this like moment where Ram is dying and he realizes that like Flynn is a user and he's like, are you a user? And Flynn's like, yes. And then he like dies and derezzes and you're supposed to be like crying or something over the insurance program. Yeah. <laughs> but you're... I miss the insurance program. And I was moved. You heartless bastards. <laughs> You're really sad about Ram. I, I thought that was a moment. It wasn't like, you know, Disney, I guess Pixar is the one that perfected making children cry in movies. But like, yeah, no, it was, um, I thought it was important that he met one of the creators. Yeah, I actually liked that scene. It was, I thought it was pretty sweet. And it was kind of an important, memorable scene too, because it's where suddenly Flynn is, is larger than life now. That one of these other characters is, is looking up to him and puts him on a pedestal. It advances the hero a little bit more. All right, all right. It also makes him feel the stakes like nothing had before in the, the digital world. Someone he knew had died, you know, and, and began to care about. Like he began to care about a program. I don't just mean the sentiment of it, of Ram dying. I mean that you know, now he's more important and he has this user power right. that he has. So that's that's what I mean. Like our hero has now moved on to this next level, recognizing what he can do. Pun intended. Well, then maybe we can earmark this as the last scene in the movie that makes any goddamn sense. Because <laughs> from this point on, the movie starts falling apart like a cheap suit or a cheap program, rather, because... Tron shows up at the IO tower, right? He just kind of walks in and then we see Yori, who is Laura, working there on this solar sailor simulation. Why is it called a solar sailor simulation? Why not just call it a solar sailor? Fine, it's a ship that sails somewhere, but it's like the way they describe it is so deliberately confusing. I still don't know what that thing does. And she's working on it, and she seems to be like, I don't know, under some sort of mind control, but you don't know what's going on. And then Tron goes up to her and he's like, no, it's me, Tron or whatever. And she's like, oh, Tron, I'm so happy to see you. And they like hug and it's like they're together like they are in real life. And I'm like, okay. And then they're like, we have to go, we have to go do something. And they just like leave. <laughs> like, like I thought this was like where they were going the whole time. This is like where he's been trying to get to. I mean, I know they're going to talk to uh lost boys, grandpa, but like this whole scene is completely confusing. And they're separated too. Like Flynn is now sort of bumbling through town which is actually a kind of a cool, you see some like David Bowie costumes in there and stuff. Those are the inoperative data pushers. <laughs> <laughs> really? They're like the weirdos of... You You actually caught what their names were? Yeah, I, like I went back. Wow. I, well, first of all, I put on subtitles for the, yeah. the second time I watched it so I could catch all of these names and stuff because I really wanted to know who they were because I was totally intrigued by their whole little world because they just hang out by the I.O. stage. I guess. Yeah, these are the people just like, just sort of out on a, for a night on the town kind of people, right? Right. And some of them are like sexy or whatever and look right. like prostitutes or something. <laughs> like, I'm like, I want to know what's going on with the inoperative data pushers. The inoperative data pushers. That's good. That's got to be the next Halloween costume. <laughs> and I'm an inoperative data pusher. <laughs> you said this whole sequence, not just one scene, but the Basically, until our, the characters make it to the in-out tower, you're right. Like, I get lost 
at this point in the movie every single time I watch it. Like Flynn is going through town. He's in this recognizer and it's turned into this like comedic routine. And I think the reason why it starts to get really fuzzy here is because they're really trying to show off the animation because Flint is driving this recognizer and he's like, I can't really figure out this thing. And that's when bit shows up again and bits like flitting around and he's like, Hey, who are you? And it's like, yes, no. All it can say is yes or no, which is cool. I get it. Zeros and one, but like bit is kind of like a lame R2 D2. Like he doesn't actually do anything. It or whatever just floats around and says yes or no. Yeah, it actually doesn't service him at all. It doesn't help out the situation. No. No, but it's it's established because Clue has that in the beginning too. Yeah. And it it did have an impact because they used this photo light effect and they made an entire TV series out of it called Auto Man. And Auto Man had Cursor, which was basically the bit from Tron, like completely lifted. It was like if it came from a commercial and turned into a movie, then it went back to TV. Auto Man? Auto Man was ridiculous. You've never seen no, it? No, I've never heard of Auto Man. I remember it. I didn't watch it. Look it up. Okay. Cursor could like create a car that basically looked like the helicopter from Encom, but it was like a car made out of... You know, like the light cycles, but it had all the glowing lines on it. Wow. No, I've never heard of this. Oh, my God. It will blow your mind. I'm happy to hear that Bit had a lasting effect on <laughs> pop culture. But in this fucking movie, he doesn't do shit. He just flips around and doesn't help the situation whatsoever. The recognizer that Flynn is piloting ends up crashing right at the I.O. station. And then Flynn sees the uh, inoperative data pushers. But he doesn't really explore them either. So sadly, twice they've been teased and not explored. From here on out, the primary goal of this movie is to sort of showcase this computer-generated imagery. So I feel like they just kind of stop worrying about plot, and it just becomes like, we've got to get over there. And so they've got to like get over there on something. That's literally all I remember of this sequence of events is them just trying to get from point A to point B, and I don't remember how they do it. So Laura is one of the programmers for the laser. And so her equivalent program whatever she's responsible for is yori so the 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 solar sailor goes on the laser in other science fiction and i don't even know how it fits into this it's basically a giant sail barge sure but it has something to do with the the laser that they were right that's confusing too because i thought the the in out tower was part of that laser the io tower is basically the interface you know input output between the game grid, and the real world. So that's how they're able to communicate. And for some reason, I guess because he's one of the originators of ENCOM, the gatekeeper to the IO Tower is Walter's program. Which is called Dumont in this world for some reason. Dumas. (laughs) No, it's Dumont. Is it Dumont? Yes, it's Dumont. That's what the subtitles say. Tron and Yuri have got to go talk to Tamont and they have to like slide past a recognizer and they go down and it's basically Bernard Hughes in this like he looks like almost like a um, cardinal or something like a religious cardinal but he's sort of stuck in this chair and Tron is basically trying to contact his user aka Alan and 
Bernard Hughes gives this sort of metaphysical mumbo jumbo, which like if you're a kid, you're completely lost at this point. And you're like thinking, is this Obi-Wan Kenobi or whatever? But it's not. (laughs) So, yeah, we're in yet another sort of confusing scene. And meanwhile, Flint has been sneaking around and he like knocked down one of the guards and then he gets the guards red highlights in his own costume. So now he's basically masquerading as one of the bad guys. I mean, that's a cool moment when he sneaks up on that procession that I think Sark's ahead of it, um, yeah. takes the guy out because, you know, that Tim turning red becomes a fun moment later on. Yeah, I'm, I'm fine with all that stuff. I mean, I'm pretty much happy whenever Flynn, a.k.a. Jeff Bridges, is on the screen. It's the Tron and Yori stuff that really gets kind of hard to pay attention to. Wait, so they he hasn't reached... Um to communicate with Alan yet. So that's what I'm saying. Like, I'm still... That's where we are. We are. Yes. Okay. That's what I was saying. This whole sequence of events is... You you just explained it, and I'm still confused. Both of you guys did. It's just to get Tron into this room where he... Where he can talk to Alan. There's a big beam, and he puts his data disk into the beam, and it, like, flies up into the air. This is where you start seeing the, the geometry change and it's more of the curved lines yeah it's more psychedelic yeah there's like this paisley psychedelic pattern like going on in the background we're getting into more kind of loose non-geometrical sort of 70s sci-fi weirdness here which i appreciate that's what i was saying before it's like the movie's kind of falling apart narratively but i feel like the visuals are getting more and more crazy so i can at least enjoy that level of it tron gets to speak to alan one i guess there's multiple alans at ncom so they need to designate it (laughs) and he's able to get the instructions on how to defeat the mcp Imprinted on his disc. Yeah, it's like code. It's encoded. So finally, the the disc gets used for its actual purpose. And meanwhile, Sark has a a sort of two pronged ramming device, which he's trying to break into where Dumon is to get the Guardian. But by then, Tron has the the deets on the the game plan. Yeah. So then, Tron and Yuri must take the Solar Sailor simulation across the game sea to the central computer. Did you catch that it was the game sea they were crossing? No. But that's the landscape that I totally dig. And here's where I really noticed the crazy synth music because then things start going like like we're totally in like a 70s animated movie soundtrack so wendy carlos who did the soundtrack for tron was a, a huge synth pioneer and used to be walter carlos so she was she's trans and she was trans i think she she kind of came out to the public in in the late 70s. For a number of her releases, after having taken the hormone treatment and whatnot, and then getting the, the corrective surgery, but she was putting on makeup and a wig and a mustache to present as a male because she wasn't sure that people would accept her as a trans artist. And as Walter Carlos, Walter Carlos had a hit album. It was a pretty big deal called Switched on Bach. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I know that. And that's like one of the early electronic synth albums that came out. So Wendy Carlos has a a history in electronic music and had formerly done uh, The Shining and The Clockwork Orange as well. So that's why this the soundtrack is 
you know, for, for that kind of early analog synth noises is a pretty exciting soundtrack with um, symphonic addition in the background. She demanded that it be a combination of the synth electronic music and the s- symphony score. So that's why the London Philharmonic is also a part, and a chorus, um, which gives this movie such a unique sound. Yeah. Um, I think the soundtrack for this movie is amazing. I had a... I love it. Yeah. I had a cassette that had a bunch of scores on it, but it wasn't the original score. It was like another symphony orchestra doing covers of those songs. And I was like, yeah, this isn't the real thing. And it wasn't until later (laughs) where I got like the actual Wendy Carlos soundtrack. I was like, yes. Yeah. And it's like, you know, I think prior to that, she had really just done renditions of classical music. And she did that in The Shining. Right. And I think in Clockwork Orange too, she just basically did synth versions of classical music. So this was the first time that she had done like, her own original compositions or not the, probably not the first time, but it was for a score. It was a big deal. Um, so if you just listen to the soundtrack separately on its own as sort of a, a moment in synthesizer history, it's, it's pretty fun. I'm sure if I listened to it on its own, I would enjoy it. I'm just talking about the context (laughs) of the movie. There are moments where I'm kind of like, huh, this is what we're doing here. Like, that's all I'm saying. Yeah. I honestly didn't really notice it up until this point. No, it's, that's a pretty wacky scene. I, I I will say that's it gets a little loud and frenetic at that point. But yeah, I think it complements the, the imagery pretty well, you know, with all this sort of early computer generated imagery. Right. It complements the imagery, but it's not necessarily being propulsive or energizing. It's kind of just being crazy. Yeah. I I respect her work and I respect its place in the world of synthesizer scores. I will actually listen to the soundtrack because I'm interested to hear it. I'm just saying this stuck out to me a little bit as kind of head scratching. There's um, a later release, um, I think of compositions that weren't included on this soundtrack and The Shining and um, Clockwork that was released separately. Oh, cool. Which are, if you wanted to hear even more of it. They get on the sail barge. The evil guards are trying to stop them. But also Flynn, who's now red, is trying to get on it. Tron's knocking everyone off while Yori is trying to get the sail barge to start going. When they're on their way, Flynn has managed to hold on. He hasn't completely fallen off the sail barge. And, and Tron sees him as like Duke's up about to like kick him off. And he's like, oh, no, it's me. So they pull him up. And then Tron, who... The goodness of his heart transfers his blueness back into Flynn. Yes. So Flynn's blue again. And then when the sail barge goes over all this weird stuff, you see the Mickey Mouse ears. Oh, I didn't catch that. And the head on the ground as a sort of Easter egg. Yeah, I missed that. There's also an Easter egg on Sark's giant um, game map world where there's some, if you look closely, Pac-Man is doing uh, the Waka Waka in the corner. Yeah, that's in the beginning. Yeah, I did notice the Pac-Man. I missed the uh, the mouse ears, though. I never, I never seen that. Get to watch it again. See if your son catches it. <laughs> yeah, and this is also where uh, Flynn tells Tron that he's a user. He also has sort of an awkward moment with uh, Yori, where he realizes that Yori is Laura. They kind of make weird eyes at each other, and Tron's like, you know, why are you looking at my lady or whatever? <laughs> Um, right. So the weird sexual politics get carried over into this realm as well. So a power surge comes down the, the beam 
and basically slows down the solar sailor. So using the power of physics, Flynn redirects the energy beam to another source and basically makes the solar sailor switch beam paths. And then that power surge slams into the recognizers and destroys everyone that's following them. I did not catch most of that. <laughs> no, I, I didn't either. Thank you for explaining it, Steve. Okay. I just learned a lot about this movie that I've seen so many times. That you love. It's one of those things that you just let it glaze over you, like as a kid. Yes. You're just like, cool, they're on a ship. They, I know they're trying to get to that thing that's over there that's a beam. Right. And Tron needs to get his disc. You don't really care yeah. how they're doing it. None of this ex is explained as well as Steve just explained it. Cindy Morgan basically, at this moment in time, created the vision of like what I find beautiful. Uh-huh. Yori looks pretty good in her Tron costume. And I hadn't even seen Caddyshack. Well, obviously, I wouldn't have, a six-year-old would not be watching Caddyshack. Have you seen the um, the deleted scene where she, like... The lingerie? Has this evening gown, the, the like, butterfly evening gown that she... Yes. Like, her and Tron actually have, like, a, a sort of a hot moment together. Wow. I need to see this. You didn't see that, Seb? No. You know when I said I had the, the seven-disc Aliens box set on Laserdisc? Like... I had the Tron one, too, from, like, the Disney vault. And it had that, you know, that lingerie scene in it. Yeah, so there's an erotic Yori deleted scene. I'm glad it was cut from the theatrical. <laughs> <laughs> so the next major thing that happens is Shark's ship sort of cuts off the solar sailor, and they collide with it. And it's sort of a big, you know, explosion or whatever. And Flynn and Yori are captured, and they think that Tron is killed but he's really not. He's like clinging to the side of the ship or whatever. And so in the Sark ships, they are reunited with Dumont, the grandpa from Lost Boys. We get a scene with uh, Flynn and Yori and Sark. Sark takes Dumont to the MCP and then he leaves the others on the ship. And this is what you were talking about, Troy. And I get completely confused here because Sark's like, I'm going to leave you on my ship. And as soon as I leave, it's going to be derezzed. The implication being that they're going to be derezzed too when the ship is derezzed. And Flynn is like, but this wall. He's like pointing at this thing and he's like, but but this wall, Yori. And none of the dialogue is supporting what is supposed to be happening. Anything that's going on. So I am to I'm totally confused here of what the uh, the threat is supposed to be. Like apparently this thing is getting derezzed. They're still on it. I don't know how they get off of it. They don't. It gets completely derezzed and they're fine, as far as I can tell. That's why it's so confusing. Explain, Steve, please. We need you. Yori is starting to fade because the entire ship's getting derezzed. And Flynn grabs her. And because he's so full of the user energy, he's able to put energy back into her so that she doesn't die. Okay. But what about the ship that they're on? Well, okay. So the ship's getting thrown through like a basically a shredder. Yeah. Which is turning it into like lines or whatever. As the ship's getting derezzed, all the barriers of the shield prison that they're in get weakened and they're able to go to the top console okay. um, where they pretty much spend the rest of the movie. But there's a top level on this ship? Yeah, there's like a console where Yori can control it's it. like a double-decker bus? Yeah. Why didn't the upper level get derezzed? Oh, it's in the back of the ship. What? You managed to explain the, that other scene really well. This is still n making zero <laughs> sense. Okay, imagine imagine you're the ant on the end of a hoagie 
and your and and your mouth is slowly eating the hoagie. Flynn and Yori are the ants, and you're the derezzing square. So by the end of the movie, you haven't finished the hoagie. That ant is still back there. Does that make sense? So the the ship, <laughs> but you said the ship got derezzed. Now you're saying it, it- no, it's in the process of getting derezzed. Uh, meanwhile, <laughs> Sark has taken all the um, the program elders. Don't understand this, by the way. You no, know, to get taken to the MCP so that the MCP can incorporate their programs into its master program. Sure. Yeah, I, I get that. There's that that sort of like Logan's Run carousel scene where yes, they're all right. kind of in there about to be absorbed into the MCP. I'm still confused. If you eat the hoagie and there's an ant on the end of it, they're going to be eating. The ant dies. But it never got fully, the hoagie never got fully eaten. Is that what you're saying? That's what I'm saying. What he's saying is a ship never got fully derezzed, which right. I'm not sure if that's actually I don't, what happens because Yeah, that's that's not what By I the saw. end of the movie they seem to be standing in like an outline. There's no right. solid walls or anything left. I'm assumed that the whole ship got derezzed but they somehow didn't die. So the video game Sulaco whatever is slowly sinking so that at the by the end of the the fight between at the end it's basically like a deflated air balloon and they just come to the ground well, you just switched metaphors from this can't be a hoagie and an air balloon at the same time <laughs> well it makes sense to steve but i'm still not <laughs> it's not making sense somehow they don't die yeah, somehow they yes. don't die it's not fully explained i'm gonna have to watch the movie again to see if there's any sort of explanation but i don't think there is i actually rewound this part to try to figure out what the hell was going on in there i think they must have just cut out some kind of moment where it was like oh well we're fully derezzed but we're still here because of my power it does seem like a weird edit like there's a couple of missing shots this whole climax becomes kind of bafflingly, honestly. Yes. This whole climax is not good. Can we agree on this, guys? Yes, we can agree that the whole climax. I disagree. I disagree completely. There's no, th- Steve, there's some really cool things in there, but as a climax where it's supposed to be giving you stakes and a countdown where you have to get to this place before right. the, the door closes or whatever. None of that is working. The countdown, not to keep coming back to this, but the countdown is the ship getting derezzed, but it's never resolved. Yeah. So Yuri basically makes whatever's left of the ship as it's derezzing. Flynn says, fly it over the MCP beam so that he can eventually jump in. Right. But the MCP is like busy fighting tron no at this point it's it's absorbing other programs right but it's also sark is fighting tron but then tron defeats sark and then the mcp is like i'm giving you all my power sark right Right. that kind of made sense and then sark grows giant so flynn has to jump into the beam while tron is trying to deal with sark and and essentially the mcp's guard is down now because he gave all his power to sark so right Flynn can jump in there. Like in the video game, when you play that versus the MCP, you're gumming around and then the screen is full of the the grid bugs, like the spider creatures that you see earlier in the movie. Are you talking about the video game or are you talking about the movie? The video game. The game puts up like a brick out thing where you have to like throw the disc in to destroy the, yeah. the shields. Yeah. That's in the movie. 
I remember the game. It makes a lot more sense than the end of the climax. (laughs) The game actually makes way more sense. It basically creates a gap that then Tron can throw his disc into the MCP. It all makes sense in the most basic, like, kid, like, guy goes into this. The guy throws the things into that. So it's all fine. You shoot the photon into the hole in the Death Star Yes. Right. We're all kind of familiar with that, so it sort of works on that level. And then once he does that, the craziest thing in all of this, you know, there's this whole, you know, sort of silly light show that goes on with like really crude CGI things kind of flying around. Not giving it a hard time. You got to start somewhere. But then the weirdest thing is the MCP starts, it's, you know, it's kind of this like spinning thing and it slows down and we see that it's like an old man and looks like he's inside this kind of rock. So I'm assuming that's the chess game. Yeah, that's what I thought too. He's the early original program from Grandpa Lost Boys, right? But it's not him. I mean, if it is him, the, the the, the aging makeup is to the extreme it's not a makeup it's just they just put some old guy in there which is why it's a little confusing it's not bernard hughes it's somebody else right it's not it's the representation of their original chess program i believe no i got that but it's just kind of bonkers it's kind of trippy it's like that that era of disney where some of the stuff gets a little weird and psychedelic and trippy and kind of scary i miss it (laughs) yeah me too this is my favorite again this is like my favorite era of disney the failure era. <laughs> I love this era so much. It's It started with, I think it was when they tried to get out of the kids market and try to go to teens. Yeah. And they tried it with Black Hole and Tron and something Wicked This Way comes. And, and then the, the Black Cauldron a couple years later. This is, it's my favorite era of Disney, hands down. It's definitely the dark time of Disney. They look at it as a really dark time. But yeah, for people like us, it's like the halcyon days of weird <laughs> Disney. When the disc hits the center and the MCP gets like stretched up and thin and turns all blue. Yeah, just... Really cool stuff. And then um, that destruction of the MCP resonates throughout the entire game world. It sort of brings peace to the game world and things kind of... They now have this sort of light flowing through them that lets you know that now things are good. All the red color changes to blue, so kids get that on a color coding level. Steve, I just want to say I love how much you love this. It's really heartwarming. (laughs) (laughs) No, like I said, it, it, you you were saying you're nine and whatever, like you saw it. I was I saw it when I was nine. Yeah, and I saw it when I was I guess six. I'm so glad your son saw it while I was eight. Yeah, I think any later than seven through or six through nine, you start to lose the wonder. You know, I, I was actually thinking about that when um, he was saying. If he want, if he was ready to see Tron, because there's a very narrow window there. You're right of when you can see it as a kid, and that window doesn't allow you any comprehension yeah. at all. It's right, because right. if you're just a little bit too older and you can understand it a little bit better, it's probably not going to 
be a movie that you're going to stick with. Now we're back in the real world because once Flynn dived into the light, he, I guess the laser gun just decided to bring him back. And so he's rematerialized in the real world. And the, the high stakes that we've all been biting our nails over are finally realized. And he gets this printout <laughs> from the computer that tells him that Dillinger so stole his uh, program for space paranoids and Tron. Like this printout is proof. That's all you need. <laughs> like nobody could ever fake that. So he like rips it off and then uh, Dillinger goes to his cool uh, desk computer and it says like, I'm paraphrasing here, but it says like, you stole the program. <laughs> Whatever. And the MCP program is, is now gone. Gone. Right. Because as Alan said, when the Tron program sees something illegal, it shuts it down. So Tron, the title of the movie, the hero character, fulfilled his function as a program and shut down the MCP. So Tron is a cop? Yes. Yes. He's a security program. Right. Yeah. Okay. He's called a security program in the movie. When Flynn gets sent back into the real world and redigitized, they play that earlier animation in reverse, yes. Um, just a little bit quicker. Very cool. Yeah, the rabbit hole animation where he's traveling. Right. I don't know if it's a callback, but it's definitely like you know the two thousand and one space thing. Oh yeah, it it totally delivers on that level. It's definitely this kind of psychedelic, trippy visual experience. That's the end of the movie. We get this one final sort of awkward scene where uh, Alan and uh, Lori are up on a helicopter pad. Lori's got herself a sweet Angora sweater on. They all became yuppies, it looks like. They all became yuppies, and um, the NCOM helicopter comes like flying up. It's a pretty like crazy helicopter move, and then it turns around and Flynn gets out of the helicopter. So Jeff Bridges was really in the helicopter when it was pulling that move kudos to him i would be shitting my pants <laughs> and he gets out and he's like i'm in charge everybody or whatever and they're all like yay and that's the end of the movie and then uh yeah i think we get some sweet journey in the end credits a journey song that was playing in the arcade there's two journey songs one's like a sort of instrumental and then the other song's only solutions uh, like a line that flynn actually says in the beginning of the movie but like i love this song and 1983 that's when the Journey video game hit the arcades. Oh, yeah. Um, so I'm wondering like, if there was a correlation between them working on Tron and the video game. They're like, let's make a Journey video game, which was also, I remember, being a lot of fun, but a lot of really hard. There was a Journey video game. Yes. yes. Look it up. Another thing I, I totally missed. Wow. But very cool. I spent a lot of days in the arcade. <laughs> <laughs> Did you get any high scores on Tron, Steve? No, my highest scores were in um, Elevator Action. Oh, Elevator Action. All right, so the budget for this movie was $17 million, and it ended up clearing $33 million worldwide, which is basically just the states. So, I mean, it's kind of doubled its budget. So it could be argued that it wasn't a bomb or anything, but this property sat on the shelf for years it certainly wasn't making star wars type of money or anything like that and the the attempt was like you said to sort of capture that star wars magic like they wanted toys 
They wanted all this paraphernalia marketed to kids and the video game. The attempt was to have this thing be massive. And I'm going to argue the reason why it couldn't be is because, A, the lingo, the world was not ready for this sort of computer terminology. I mean, I think the concept of people getting kind of drawn into a virtual world would obviously be a concept that we'll see again and will work more successfully, specifically in the matrix but i just think people were not ready for the terminology and i think that the movie itself becomes really baffling especially in the second half that's kind of my take is why it didn't catch fire steve what are your thoughts on why tron didn't become a cultural phenomenon i never saw it in that way it was it was always for me because i didn't really care you know about the reviews or I didn't have access to magazines of it. Like there was no internet. Like my opinions were just my own. So Tron was amazing. And you're the person that professes to love big swings. This is the biggest swing of all. It is a big swing. <laughs> I, I appreciate that about it a lot. Yeah. Troy, why do you think that Tron didn't quite become a cultural phenomenon? Like you said, the computer terminology was just uh, a total foul. It was a big miss. You know, you could have tried to have this sort of artificial world that they go into. I mean, it's it's the same template story of this, like a space adventure, fish out of water, going to another universe or something. But yeah, trying to to explain, like, have a character that's an actuarial program. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and these these very specific technical references completely bogs down the story in here. Steve, you're you're the first like Hypertron fan that I've met cuz I've always loved this movie, but I have never met anybody ever in my life that's just like Tron's fucking awesome. Like there's always people that are like, you know, Tron's cool or the, yeah, it's got some there's cool things in it or had a good look, but I've never met anybody that's just a diehard Tron fan. So you're a first on that. Yeah. I feel like there should be more people on that boat, but I can clearly see reasons why this um, didn't resonate with kids. You need to simplify the story into something like Star Wars, where you just have a light sword, yeah. you know, and the force. I get what you're saying. I mean, I could say the same about, you know, I, I'm, I, I'm a nerd, so I'm going to be down for all the sort of jargon speak even if i don't understand it or the nonsense they say in star trek i'm just like yeah yeah sure yeah. sure magic <laughs> it's a techno babble but this actually isn't techno babble no it's actually real babble yeah right which is even better when you learn <laughs> that the stuff that they're saying is real is, is referring real things yeah Right. I mean, it's sort of like uh, when you're watching Fellowship of the Ring, I was ready for it. But if someone was like, yeah, I glazed over at all the elf names and all the sure. elven nonsense, I'm just like, that's not the point. The point is um, this Wizard of Oz sent to another realm and uh, being a fish out of water, but then being in your element because he was already a gamer. And then at the end, you see the the wizard behind the curtain, the MCP is just like a withered old yeah. weak man. It's a modern take. And I feel that they really succeeded across the board. Okay. But let me ask you this. The whole thing about the wizard of Oz is that you have these characters who are all learning to achieve something that they have, but they don't believe they have. 
what are the characters in Tron like trying He's to trying achieve? He's trying to get the info on his game on space paranoids. Right. I mean, that's literally what he's going for, but it's not, <laughs> that's not in a very emotional thing. No, it's, he created the world. Yes. And he did not get credit for it. Right. Someone stole that from him. That's a pretty selfish motivation. No, I mean, but it's a lot of money. <laughs> yes. The motivation here so is. So this is like a yuppie Wizard of Oz. It's a copyright. It's like the person that's like the lawsuit about Facebook. I was like, no, I created Facebook. I was like, no, I did. Steve, you're getting into what what I was kind of tapping into early on, which is this. I think the sentiment in this, which is a hard thing for for kids to get on board with. There's definitely a sentiment of embittered uh, computer programmers yeah. seeing a corporate takeover. And that seems to be like an underlying theme that's sort of carrying this a little bit. And, and the sentiment I think is, is a little sour. Yeah. It's cause he's trying to get his copyright information. Like that's not what kids want to have you, your end goal for your hero. He's not learning to get a heart or to find his courage or to no. whatever. He's like, he's essentially wants a lawsuit. I want to get what's mine. <laughs> <laughs> what you want here. And I, I think the, the scene you, you referred to earlier about your, your dad's office with all the cubicles yeah. and then the matte painting where they just extended the amount of cubicles like infinitely into the distance. That's what I'm saying. That, that explains so much like the, seeing the worker force behind this where you're just this expendable programmer. Right. Right. And I, I remember this is, this was like a huge part of my dad's whole being. Like he, he hated corporate outsourcing and corporate takeovers. And he really hated like Apple, especially because that kind of changed a lot of the the computer world. But so I know that these people, these, these programmers were, they were like prisoners in those cubicles and they thought of themselves as, as being pushed around. And so that's just, I kind of get that in Tron. I sort of am picking up on, on that a little bit. I mean, not a little bit, like he's bitter because somebody else stole his program. That's what this whole movie's about. I think that's cool if you're doing like a more adult, cynical type of action movie or whatever. And it's weird for kids. Yeah, like, you know, is that what Elliot's taking away from this? Are you like, <laughs> are you like talking to Elliot afterwards and being like, see, Elliot, corporate America can really ruin <laughs> things. <laughs> In defense of the movie, the fact that it is this kind of weird is part of the charm. Yeah, definitely. That's that's why I like it. All right, guys. Well, I'm going to go steal a recognizer and derez a solar sailor really slowly and then throw my data disk into the master control program. <laughs> That about does it today for Tentpole Trauma. If you like what you heard, check out our social media presence on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Just look for Tentpole Trauma. That was easy, wasn't it? If you like us, hit subscribe and leave us a sterling review on iTunes, if you dare. If you really like us, head over to Patreon.com and get involved in one of our fabulous tiers. You'll be glad you did. Want to communicate with Tentpole Trauma? Send an email to tentpoletrauma at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And who knows, one day you may even get your email read on one of our shows. 
Thanks for listening, and we'll see you real soon.